So when you when you were ready, you were ready for yeah. that freedom. <laughs> we're just be... looking after your countries <laughs> for you. Because like something... you can't look after them yourself. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tisai. Britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open. We are really, really excited to be joined by Angela Saini, who is a science journalist, broadcaster, and the author of three books, Geek Nation, How Indian Science Has Taken Over the World, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. And her third book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Superior, The Return of Race Science. You're also featured in Science, Wired, The Guardian, The New Humanist, the new scientist and BBC Radio. You are a legend. <laughs> you are. And we met because I came and saw you speak about the new book. And I was just blown away because you you're obviously a science journalist, but you were talking about the importance of sociology in informing science. And I was like, oh my God, it's so amazing hearing like a science journalist like, say that sort of thing. But could you tell us a bit just if you had to summarise the book for our audience. And I mean, we're going to talk about the themes in the book today, but we want people to buy it. So we don't, want, we don't want to give away too many spoilers. Could you talk about your journey in coming to write the book a little bit? Yeah, well, you're right that a lot of science writing on race, um, and I've read a lot of it, mm. is on genetics generally. So there's, and it's quite, I mean, academia already is quite siloed. So you often get people just talking about their discipline and not really looking at the context, historical or cultural context of the work that they're doing. And I felt that that was one of the problems that I was seeing in a lot of the scientific writing on race is that we know that race is a social construct. Mm. So how can you talk about it as the, in purely genetic terms? It's just impossible. You can't do that. You have to have a kind of broader perspective on these uh, questions. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring together the science, the politics, the history, the culture, everything um, to this question and do it in a personal way. So my last book, Inferior, I wrote it in quite a detached way, um, really in order for critics to be satisfied that I wasn't bringing mm. any kind of bias to the topic because sex difference research is legitimate research. Lo loads of people around the world do that. And it's not, um, although it is controversial and it is contested, it is still mainstream research. Race research isn't. It's actually just, you know, it, when it's ever been done, even the concept of race itself was constructed for a reason and propagated for a reason. And it's always been political from its heart. And that's why I thought I'm going to write this more from my point of view um, as a journalist because I want people to understand that race is something that belongs to each of us and that we um, that matters to each of us and any scientist who has written on race ever has had a certain point of view and a certain set of experiences that have led them to write what they have and I also have my own so this mm. is what I think mm. Mm. that's really it's, it's really powerful because I guess it gets written about so much, but yeah, like you say, in a way that's sort of absolute, like it exists, but we know that. <laughs> but I think when you're talking scientifically, I think for people in science, mm. it's a pure discipline. Yeah. So it's viewed as objective, mm. dispassionate, and not linked socially to anything. There's no, there's no 
there's no bias behind it. Yes. So yeah. this is how science is presented. It's, it's, it's how, like, because there's numbers, there's formulas, mm. and it falls into that notion of, like, a pure empirical thing. Mm. Whereas the kind of things we're talking about, cultural, mm. sociological, historical, matters interpretations, yeah. grey areas, it, they don't kind of join. If you're into, if you're a true academic, mm. We don't mix, do we? <laughs> no, not at we all. We don't mix. We don't mix. Yeah. We don't mix. And there's a bit of snobbery, if I'm mm-hmm. honest, um, which I find just infuriating. Scientists often think of the social science and the humanities as somehow wishy-washy, you know, mm. not really hard and numbers-based like they are. And that is why you get disciplines like economics that really try and bring more of the numbers feel in the understanding or the illusion sometimes that this will somehow make it more rigorous when it doesn't always because actually we're humans and Mm -hmm. we're messy and every single one of us is different and not just that we change all the time cultures don't stay static we are inherently cultural if you have a baby and you deprive them of all social contact they will not appear human at all Mm. you know to be human is intrinsically to be social and cultural Mm -hmm. so how can you try and distill down human nature when human nature itself is inherently social and cultural. I think what one of the points you make at the, at the start of your book is that how these things are conceived is conceived from a certain point of view. And so your, I think one of the good examples you gave was when, we, when they first go to Australia, right? So Australian Aborigines have been there for hundreds of thousands of years. And so European concepts have not, hadn't got the capability of understanding their notions of time and being. So literally, you're looking at aliens. You're like, yeah. <laughs> how am I going to understand these people? Yeah. And I suppose that idea of encountering difference and not, and not even having the vocabulary to kind of process that yeah. is a, a scary thing. It is a scary thing. And it's weird because I, uh, you know, Western culture, from what we learn at school, is a couple of thousand years old, mm. you know. And we had the Greeks and the Romans before that. And we have ancient Egypt, we know. My family's culture, my parents are from India, this is a culture that is at least 5,000 years old. So already we have a kind of different way of thinking about time and how, thinking about, you know, progress of humanity and, you know, what what we can do and what we have done and ideas. Ideas aren't just 2,000 years old or even, you know, if we're looking just at the birth of the Enlightenment, then it's not just a couple of hundred years old. Um, so to encounter cultures and civilizations that are tens of thousands of years old, which you do, which you do see amongst Aboriginal Australians, that's not to say their culture is again static, that it's the same as it was 60,000 years ago. No. It's not. There are many different cultures and they've always been changing and they've always been moving. But you're right. How does very shallow culture, and I mean in time terms, mm. so not, with not a huge historic depth, understand a culture that is orders of magnitude older than itself and that has always been a challenge and you're right you get you still see this myth in popular culture that the pyramids weren't built by the ancient egyptians they were built by australians just this unwillingness to accept that people in the past could have done something that europeans weren't able to do and that's what i think sort of drawing on what you were saying about the invention of race and power the thing that stood out for me in the book which I thought you grappled with really well, was how recent Mm. some of this 
intellectualization around difference and race has been mm. and like tracing it back to the enlightenment it's not that long ago mm. uh, but how embedded it is even mm. though it was yeah even though it was relatively recent yeah i guess we do talk about this on the podcast in other points but i feel like the detail that you go into it and sort of drawing on the sort of genealogy of that recent history is what makes it such an essential read yeah. well, I hope so you know <laughs> no, it wasn't just to pick you up but you know what I mean like when we talk about like yeah enlightenment but, but it's, yeah. that's, that's but, but for me I, I think the enlightenment's important like the 18th century but it wasn't until the 19th century yeah that's what I'm saying yes. that's how read that's it how kicks into overdrive yeah, so, so yeah. one of my not one of my favourites I wouldn't say but it's someone I look at a lot it's Durkheim Durkheim's work in Australian Aboriginal he's mm. saying that this is the most primitive form of life that you can examine on earth and you can examine it scientifically so the social sciences want to be like a science. So yeah. you're looking to quantify and say that these people are definitive at the bottom. So there's a scale of, mm. of humanity. Yeah. And on this scale, you're there mm. and we're here. And I try to point that to people that this, this, this kind of thing, it, it kind of pulls through to normal life. I said, even like your, the codings of, like the, of the police, mm. I see one is a white male. Mm. I see three <laughs> is a black male. Mm. And like, it all, when you point that to people, they're like, well, but I said, this is what it's like. Yes. But I said, unless you start seeing it, you don't feel it, you don't understand. And I said, at every point, you're closer to the centre than me. And I think um, one example, I went with my friend to watch uh, the latest Fast and the Furious film. Mm. I expected it to be rubbish. <laughs> I expected that. But it wasn't, that was upset me. The most upsetting thing was at the end, there's one black character, which is Idris Elba. And at the end, Spoiler alert, sorry for people. <laughs> At the end, he's on one side and all the white characters on the other side. The line was, you're not human. Mm. You, uh, we chose humanity, so white mm. people are human, mm. you're not. Oh, he's, he's a baddie, isn't he? He's a baddie and he's, uh-huh. he's augmented and he's strong. And he's, mm. like the, ultimate, and he's the ultimate predator. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh my God. So it's dehumanising yeah. him, essentially. Yeah. And he's making him, yeah. Very so, is that, and the yeah. guy who makes it, he's been mechanically altered by white men. Yeah. And I'm like, who, who, who stamped this? Because it's gone through well, various committees. You know, that's not so different from what happened to my dad's family. So in the 19th century, the British designated, so Saini surname was des- designated a martial race. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So we were fighters, warriors. Okay. They're all in the military. My great granddad fought for the British in the First World War. Mm-hmm. My granddad fought in the First World War under this kind of edict that we are warriors you know Mm. we are designed for this thing nothing else just this one thing we're loyal Mm. we're fighters we're strong that's it and that essentialism that you see and you still see it now people do it all the time to other people you see it in sport you see it Mm. in intelligence all these Mm. different areas never never to white people (laughs) you don't ever hear people say oh british people are naturally good at running or naturally good at this. <laughs> yeah. We know that there's a variety of people and we're all, we can all do different things within a society. <laughs> but they essentialise about other cultures all the time. <laughs> you know, Kenyans make great marathon runners. Um, Indians make really good doctors. Yeah. Chinese are really good at maths. You know, all these simplistic, essentializing terms that airbrush away any sense that these enormous populations that you're talking about are just are just as full of diverse talents and skills as your population mm-hmm. is. But somehow, whatever we do is normal humanity. Whatever else anybody else does is because almost in an animalistic way, you have certain qualities and yeah, traits. Yeah, like a trait. And I think, I think that's, for me, when I try to pin down what is white privilege, white yeah. privilege is the ability to be freedom to be yourself yeah whereas you essentialize and homogenize everyone yes. else yeah so you can i can't be just me yeah 
like I carry the traits of what you think and does all my yeah. race mm. and vice versa. Like, mm. but for white people, they can be have that freedom. Mm. So you can go watch a film. It's just a film. Yeah, but that's <laughs> why I think that's why I think Asha, great that you got the review from Rennie as well because I feel mm. like it very much speaks to the same sort of audience. As mm. in, I really believe that white people need to be reading your book mm. because I think you said I think I saw you speaking about it maybe on on the radio on telling you were saying. This book is for the people who use race in their everyday language without actually thinking about what they're saying, mm. in a way. Yeah. So actually, like you say, that it's not for the mega mm. racists and yeah. the intellectual, intellectualized racists, because they're too mm. far gone, they're, like, we can't do anything about those people. Yeah. But it's these people in the middle that will still say stuff to like me and Tia mm. in their everyday. Yeah. That is, and that I'll say as well, like you, you obviously, yeah. you've been really very honest and said that you, you engage in sometimes this language. Mm. I definitely do as well. Mm. It's for us to sort of like, like, mm. think a lot harder yes. about how we reproduce race which yeah. is what yeah it's that mid that middle group that large group yeah. that and is, I actually I think is all of us and sometimes I know that's difficult for people to hear because nobody wants to feel that they are also in their everyday language if you feel that you're a progressive liberal person who's really kind of cognizant about these things that you in your everyday life are not perpetuating these ideas, but actually we all are, mm. if we're honest with ourselves. And the reason for that is we've been raised with them. How can you not? You've been socialised, right? Yeah, so exactly. I, I try to say to people, my friends, I said like, within me, I hold all those contradictions that about myself, right? So yeah. I reproduce them on a daily basis. Yeah. Sometimes I end up policing my own people because yeah. that's how I've been bred to think. And sometimes it takes me to, to think about it. So sometimes I'll say something that's so sexist and I think, where, do, where did that come from? But you don't understand, so you have to understand, no one's actually physically taught me that. Mm. But it's just embedded. It's imbibed by, by media. And all this, but it's about having that. What I think is lacking in the 21st century is to have that critical awareness. Mm. Because people will say stuff without really thinking. Mm. And so my job is to kind of think what I'm trying to say, which mm. is hold the whole part of this. If, you're, if, you, if Western society is so superior, yeah. that's what it's all about, isn't it? Critical yeah. awareness, thinking what you're doing before you do it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something we all have to... And I think you're right. I loved Rennie's book for exactly this reason, is that here is someone honestly laying out um, the contradictions she feels, the frustrations she feels. I know, I felt them too. I'm sure you've felt them as well. This feeling that in focusing on injustice or oppression or whatever it is through one lens, you ignore all the other lenses and you don't see the ways in which you are actually then not understanding everybody's experiences. I, I think as well, like one of the things that your book spoke to for me personally and lots of these other books that have come out that are outside of, the, they're academic, but they're outside the academic bubble, like there have been trade books so you can get them in Waterstones, whatever. There's been a lot over the last few years, which yeah. has been incredible, mm -hmm. is that it's made me look back a lot on my life and things that have happened to me and made me realise how much and in this sense, race science has been like pernicious into my lived experience. Like when I was reading your book, I remembered, I think I might have spoken about it on the podcast a couple of years ago now. When I first started school, they put me in a group, English as a second language. <laughs> For eight, I was in it for about a year and my mum didn't know, my mum's white, mm. my mum didn't know and it was me and two other South Asian boys mm. were in this group in reception and they just took us away from the class and put us <laughs> in this like, it's, there was just no reason other than race as to why we would That's have been so in there. Crazy. But I know, but I, I, Carla spoke about it in his book, he was moved as well. I think there's a lot of us that sort of, 
are doing that sort of looking back at our childhoods as well, particularly those of us that have grown up in predominantly white spaces and looked at how we were treated yeah. by institutions. There, there was a lot of racism at my school. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it, so my parents moved when I was around 10 from quite a multicultural bit of East London, mm. which is really diverse. And I have to say, I never experienced any racism when I was there to a really white <laughs> area of mm. South East London, which was really racist. The headquarters of the BNP mm. were nearby. It's the same That's area good, yeah. where Stephen Lawrence was killed. But suddenly, everything changed. And it was almost as though I was noticing my race for the first time because everybody around me was noticing it and treating me differently. And it, this thing that I'd never really thought about for the first 10 years of my life suddenly became like the looming thing that I couldn't go anywhere or do anything without it, mm -hmm. it being mm -hmm. an issue um, and the teachers perpetuated that mm -hmm. there were teachers I mean I remember that we had this one physics teacher and I won't name him I don't remember his name to be honest mm. but we had one black kid in our class and he one day said I will test latent heat so black surfaces absorb more heat mm -hmm. by pouring candle wax on his skin <laughs> to show that he feels <laughs> more actual, heat on his actual hand. Sorry, I'm just sat here like no, frowning because like, I just can't quite believe. Are you crazy now? What the hell is going on here? You're a teacher, you're a physics teacher for heaven's sake. And yeah, just things like that. I mean, so many little things mm. like that growing up in that area. I remember the first school we went to. So it's a primary school when we first moved there, me and my sister and my teacher said to me, you know, I was an adult before, before I ever saw a black or Asian person. I was like, okay. <laughs> and she, like, she was like, investing so much in like, getting to know this, me. Why are you putting this <laughs> on a primary school kid? Like, oh, yeah. So just so much of that stuff, which I feel like <laughs> it's just sort of, yeah, we're, we're thinking about it more. Like, God, that's what happened in the 80s. That's what happened in the 90s. Was yeah. Obviously, there was, there was more. It was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. But... The thing that sort of scared me a little bit in reading the book is that these things are coming back. I don't think they ever left. You don't, yeah, yeah you think they ever left, but they're, but so. they're, they're getting more. It's just so like even if we track like we talk we do talk about this on the podcast here. If we made track from when the beginning when you first started doing the research on the far right stuff. The, like right. it's just the, the, the development of it, even in the last two years. Right, so it's like, just they've scary. Managed, they've managed to shift the overseas window, right? So they've managed to shift public opinion so they it's normalized their speech that's why it seems like it's more but they've always been there and they're always writing literature and like i said the difference mm -hmm. is trying to make their work kind of more more academic mm -hmm. because if it's academic it's real and because mm -hmm. prior their, their image problem was that it was mindless stupid thugs that are racist mm -hmm. but people who lead in these movements like nick griffin's uh is he oxford Cambridge. The Cambridge graduate. Mm. These people are really smart, sophisticated, man. They know a lot. And if you speak to them, or know like some guys I've spoken to, you could have a decent conversation with them. Yeah. You could talk about Kant. You could talk about Heidegger. And Heidegger's a nightmare, right? Mm. And so, and Nietzsche. They can mm. talk ex extensively on this. Yeah. So they're not stupid. Yeah. What's that like writing about these people? I think the same as you, that for years people have said to me, you know, racists are just uneducated and ignorant and if we somehow educated them, everything would be fine <laughs> and that society will get better by itself because people just get better educated, will just know things. Mm. And actually that's not what happens because like you say, there have always been racists, there have always been scientific racists, there have always been intellectual racists and the difference between the thugs, the ignorant thugs, is that their racism is obvious. You know, you see it and they will be racist to your face and you'll know it. Mm. The problem with the intellectual racists is that they not only 
is it kind of hidden underneath? So it's couched in this kind of intellectual language or academic terms. But also they have power. You know, they are in yeah. politics, they are in academia. <laughs> they decide which jobs we get. They are the ones who are the gatekeepers. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to us because look at society and how underrepresented groups are. Mm. That didn't happen by accident. Somebody was controlling that. People were there controlling who who got power and who didn't. And the fact that certain groups don't have power now is entirely because of the racism and the sexism in those <laughs> groups. Mm. Mm. That's what I just found as well in, in the book. Just, yeah, it's just scary. Like the lists of people that you talk about who are, mm. who are still sort of peddling um, race science now, mm. like down the road, yeah. there's so many of them. Mm. And I know that sounds like really naive, mm. but like there's so many of them and they're international. Yeah. And they've got so much power. But we were sort of talking on the bus down here. The thing is, fair enough, like, you want to you wanna peddle these, these notions of um, superiority and whatever. Like, the, the amount of effort that goes into doing that, like, the appetite they have to, for segregation, for race science, for white supremacy, it blows my mind in a way. Like, you're literally, you've got careers dedicated to prove, well, in, yeah, in quotations, proving that white people are superior. It just blow it that on a level just blows my mind as well. What yeah. also scares me is the application of that knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. we're talking almost like academically, like it's abstract, it doesn't do nothing, but like the Planned Parenthood in America, mm-hmm. the high abortion rates in young black mothers mm-hmm. and building clinics in poorer areas where it's black people to get these women to use clinics to walk babies, to use their, their uh, cells for stem cell research. And, it, and sometimes it can lead to, obviously, they use it for vaccines. Mm. And when they use it for vaccines in Africa, sometimes they can vaccinate. And if you over-vaccinate, it can cause a, a, sm- a small, I can't remember, not a pandemic, an epidemic, a small one. Mm. But this is an application of race science that's happening now. Mm. And that is a, it's a scary thing. Mm. And they, they, they talk about it at conferences. Mm. And it's very, it's very odd that, like, this is happening. Because they want to keep races separate. You shouldn't breed. Black people mm. shouldn't breed. It's a problem. And so there was a guy who's the head of one of those football federations, and he said, the problem is you have too many babies. And this pulls into the myth right now of white genocide. Mm. Black people and Muslims, obviously, mm. are overbreeding. Yes. And demographically, Europe has an aging and declining population. Mm. The youngest population by 2050 would be from sub-Saharan Africa. So even the demographics seems to prove the race science. So therefore, there's a case for them to say, listen, Europe needs to close its doors. So it links into policy. It links into the everyday, and that's what's scary right now. So race science isn't something that's abstract, that doesn't no, affect no. the world. Oh, yeah, this kind of eugenic thinking. I mean, even this assumption that this is something to be worried about. Yeah. You know, that's why is it actually something yeah. to worry about? It's only something to worry about if you believe that the groups that are pop, that are outbreeding the other groups are somehow inferior to the groups that mm. aren't breeding mm. this much. And that's inherently eugenic thinking. Mm. When Donald Trump talked about shithole countries <laughs> that he didn't want immigrants from, the assumption behind that is that however a country is doing, there is no person coming from that country who can possibly be good for America. Mm-hmm. You know, that somehow, well, whoever that individual is, because they come from a shithole country, they are a shithole person. Mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of idea that there are entire groups of people, entire nations who cannot produce 
<laughs> good citizens or mm-hmm. high quality people in the same way that say Northern Europe can. Mm-hmm. It's just so it's mm-hmm. so deeply rooted in scientific racism. The fact that a president of the United States can use that kind of language and it has traction as well in that country. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, during that Brexit um, referendum com- campaign that Nigel Farage stood in front of that pay- poster of people with brown skin just men with brown skin you know that could, my dad could have been in that group I could mm. have been in that group and somehow these are the ones to be feared you know even though Eastern European immigrants mm. tend not to have brown skin mm. but these are the ones that we need to worry about because if we open the doors to them then the Turks will come in and you know people from everywhere else from the mm. darker places will come in and they're some kind of threat mm. and that um, it speaks entirely to 1920s eugenics, you know, that's exactly where that comes from. But what always jars me, and I, when I'm speaking to these guys and they talk about the threats, and I'm like, mm. I said, like, the first thing I've ever learned about Western culture was that mm. you all fight each other, you all kill each other, you annihilate each other on a frequent and daily basis. Mm. And I said, like, in your history, there's no one, in from, no one from India, no one from Africa has come to you and with the, the express purpose of eliminating you. I said, you come to these places to do that to them. And it's funny how um, colonialism and genocide in that way gets reframed as somehow almost inevitable, or, you know, <laughs> as though it was... The fact that people still talk about the British Empire as though it had good, good aspects to it, I just think is jars remarkable. It, j- it jars don't me. get it. But well, it's it, like uh, Nigel Bigard, didn't he? He wanted yeah. to talk about the ethics of empire yes. and how we could, it could be a new, more nuanced conversation. Here's a Cambridge University yeah. professor. I know. Us, right? <laughs> Did you know what's, the, what's his name? The Labour Prime Minister in the 1970s. Harold Wilson. That's Howard the one. Wilson. Harold Wilson. <laughs> Wilson said, keep, we, we plan to give it back to you. So when you when you were ready, you were ready for yeah. that freedom. We're just ready. looking after you. Yeah. Trees for you. Because like you can't look after them yourself. And like, but he actually said that. Yeah. He actually said that. And like, it, but even though there's a like, this, oh, this is from Priya's book, like the idea that when this kind of process Pretty happened, yeah. sorry, yeah. So when this <laughs> process of decolonization happened, it was it's seen as a process that happened at the top. Yeah. But all these things were this trauma. They didn't understand. Mm. British people, white people don't think, oh no, they don't understand. What are we giving up? Are yes. we are we are we gonna be like them? <laughs> are they gonna come over here now? And when they did arrive, they're like, oh no. I actually had um, I was giving this so the skeptic community, skeptic with a K community, um, is within science circles quite active. And they've always been kind of um, anti-climate change denial and anti-anti-vaxxers, you know, really good on those kind of things. But weirdly, a lot of sexism and racism within the skeptic community. And weird thing that happened after I gave one skeptic talk recently was that a guy came up to me afterwards and said, wouldn't it be better if all places just kept their homogeneous cultures, you know, just stayed as they were, just, you know, Britain was British and France was French and India was Indian. I was like, first of all, you're saying this to me. What do you want me to say? And it's, it's completely coded language because he means white. He means white. When he's saying it to you, he yeah. means white. He means white. He means yeah. white. But also, it completely ignores the fact that when Britain had its empire and was going to other countries and borrowing language and borrowing culture and borrowing food and whatever else it did, mixing quite happily in exchange for all the financial rewards that it would get for that. It wasn't worrying about this. It wasn't worrying about what British culture meant or the erosion of British culture. It thought to itself, well, we are winning out of this system. We will go to all the countries in the world. And now, 
in an era of globalization and migration, when people come here, suddenly the tables are turned and those rules which did not apply then suddenly apply to everyone. You know, yeah. suddenly we have to worry about culture yeah. and how homogeneous culture is. Well, it's too late. It's so selective as well because I'm, I'm going to bring in, yeah, our friends and my colleagues, Michaela Benson and Karen O'Reilly. Their career has been dedicated to, to doing research on British emigration. British mm. emigration is like the, <laughs> one of the big, we're the biggest emigrants. It, like, that's what was there next, what was the people? Of people, <laughs> like, in the, like one of the biggest in the world. Yeah. And the way these guys come up to you and talk being like, like sort of just not mm. even acknowledging that. I'm not mm. saying he needs to be ex- an expert on that, but like, but we don't just live here. We're in, we're, we're all over. Listen, and the paradox I always get in my head and the paradox is that Western cultures, when they export people, they believe they're culture builders, right? So yes, they, believe in, yes. they, they believe in they're giving you something yeah. bigger than that they're taking, right? So yeah. I might take your freedom, yeah. but I'm giving you civilization, right? <laughs> I'm giving you civilization. Yeah. But Even on an individual level, which is why British immigrants aren't really immigrants, they're yeah, expats. expats. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we are kind of, you know, somehow enriching your, your country by going. But even though that's the kind of narrative they, to kind of justify the myth that these places are set up for extraction, so, yeah. so this this is why all colonies like they're so small and they tend to not be the fair well by themselves because they set up for one purpose only to extract wealth mm. and people so if you go to the west indies the reason why these places are so backwards almost because they set up for one purpose alone to extract wealth so how do you build a nation from a place that was set up with the infrastructure just to take stuff out mm. and you can see how that's kind of led on when these independence movements when the when the, when the natives took over mm. they behaved in that way to extract wealth mm rather than to build a nation. How can you build a nation if it's built purposely yeah. with the idea of extraction? But I fully believe that, I mean, when I wrote my first book, Geek Nation, it's, it's nearly 10 years now, mm-hmm. and um, that was when India and China were just kind of becoming kind of prominent on the global scene, where kind of GDP was rising very quickly, but mm-hmm. the West was doing very well at that point. Europe was doing really well. You can already see the tables turning. Mm-hmm. We can see what is happening in the current politics. It's really a symptom of a decline of Western European democracies and the US. And in return, what we see is China, India, Africa, all rising. Mm-hmm. GDP is going, mm-hmm. going up really quickly. Investment in science and technology. This kind of, uh, and I travel a lot. I've lived in India. I travel a lot to um, all over the world. And I see a dynamism in Asia and Africa mm-hmm. that you do not see it in Europe. No. And again, there is this fear, I think wrapped up also in this Brexit debate and um, the, the politics of the moment, and even in white supremacist mm-hmm. rhetoric, is this fear that, wait a second, we thought we would always be the winners. How is it that other people are winning now? How is it that they're becoming more powerful and they are rising and we're falling? How is it that India is buying you know, our treasured Land Rover or whatever mm-hmm. it is, these big companies that belong to us, our steel industry, now belongs to you know, some Indian billionaire mm-hmm. instead of some white English billionaire? And there is a discomfort there, I think. There is this nervousness wrapped up, one, in this idea of racial superiority, that this could never have happened, and a confusion that actually it is happening, and then um, the reaction to that is, well, we have to regain what we lost. How do we regain it? How do we reassert well, ourselves? See, it's quite interesting you say that. So this idea that they see, for example, the notion that this, these, these nations are arising, they kind of deal with that by putting out these stories, right? So mm. you'll see a lot of stories in the sun about India and like these men, they've raped a dog, 
or the yeah. women, women or, yes. and they the put sexualization of but, but brown and black but you're, women, you're still yes. uncivilized so yeah. you behave yeah. in an uncivilized yeah, way you're yeah. still a savage yeah. and these are continually or they'll talk about china's dominance they say well china you're, they're just doing a new form of colonialism they leave at the narrative that the africans now they're well aware of what the chinese are doing and so they're willing to do something the chinese do something that the europeans never had done they're actually building stuff for them yeah. that they can actually use. Yeah. And so Africans are willing to play this game. So it's, mm. it's not a passive role that they're taking. Yeah. So this is the kind of stories that you're seeing that mm. they're still trying to put out there that these people, you're not ready for civilization. Yeah. You're not ready to be at the top, so we still need to look after you. Mm. The, the white man's burden is still something that's quite... <laughs> or that you won't do it properly, yeah. you know? You'll do it, but you won't do it right. <laughs> we can somehow do it properly. So true. <laughs> One of the things that... I really wanted to get your sort of thoughts on Angela was like how we and I, I, maybe this would work if we just sort of broke down the concepts of maybe breaking down race and culture and ethnicity together but it's really difficult because obviously we've got we've got the rise of the far right we've got white supremacy just everywhere but as you said it always has been but you're finding some some people are feeling like they need to retreat Mm-hmm. And I, I completely understand that retreat and feeling much more like, more dra- drawn to culture basically again. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that among, amongst younger people as well, which I yes. guess we maybe, maybe mm-hmm. didn't see as much as we did before. Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm just more aware of it. Maybe this is just something <laughs> in my own lived experience. How can we sometimes explain to people the difference between, yeah, race, culture and ethnicity in a way that completely debunks race and says it's an invention it's social construction but there are parts of us certain groups that are uh, not necessarily aligned but we have a shared history a shared culture and that means that sometimes we may be more comfortable around each other there's some amazing scholars that i know are sometimes uncomfortable with how much effort we put into destabilizing notions of race because Mm. of these things and i do understand that but, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult it one. It is really difficult, and I come across it a lot, yeah. um, especially in academic responses to my work, is that if, if I'm saying that race isn't real, biologically, then am I saying that we should be a colorblind society? Am I saying that we shouldn't think about race at all? And actually, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that these ideas that we have, the categories that we're using, were constructed. That doesn't mean they're not real. They're real even though they're constructed, they're real because they're socially real and politically real. They affect us in our everyday lives. In fact, they affect us viscerally because because of racism and discrimination, that will have an impact on your body. It will have an impact on your mind. In The person that you are will be shaped by those things. So that's not to say that we can just walk around and imagine that race isn't real anymore because it's not biologically real. We always knew it wasn't biologically real. Mm. The hierarchies were still there. Mm-hmm. The power was still there, power relationships. Just because race happened to be invoked by science, that doesn't mean those power hierarchies wouldn't have existed anyway. Um, and so I know it feels like a subtle distinction because then in your everyday life, how do you deal with this? What, how do you operate? If you know that these categories don't exist in nature, then how do you move forward into a post-racial society? where these ideas ultimately you would hope don't matter socially or politically anymore. I'm not sure we'll ever get there. Maybe we will, I don't know. I think it's more likely we'll die in a climate change disaster before that happens. (laughs) But I do, I think we need to think about this subtly. Celebrate your culture, whatever your culture is, and whatever culture you 
feel that you belong to mm. um, if you want to do that if you want to be part of it don't f- ever frame it as being superior to others or inferior to others all cultures are their own and also understand that race and identity is not always something that belongs to you personally it actually more often belongs to the person looking at you and that's especially true when you travel so for example in America or in the US to be a black person is not the same necessarily as being a black person in South Africa you know you might be considered coloured or mixed race in South Africa and black in the US or to be Um, Aboriginal Australian and politically black in Australia is very different to how you might be considered somewhere else. Um, Ideas of caste and power and all these things get interwoven and it all sometimes depends on the eye of the beholder. And that is not a bad thing. I mean, we feel uncomfortable about it because we feel that we own our identity and only we have the right to define who we are. But actually I think I have accepted in my life that Identity is um, something that changes. It has always changed throughout history. It changes in time and it changes in place. And sometimes it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the other person. And sometimes it's their problem. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's my problem. Sometimes it's their problem. Um, But just accept that identity is a coat that you wear, not something woven into you Mm -hmm. necessarily, not something that somehow you cannot change or that, you know, Mm. is so intrinsic to you that you can't let go of it. I think it's C.L.R. James that says identity can't change things on no. its own. We can't always fixate on identity. It has to be more, more than that. It's the starting point, identity. It can't be... But I think if yeah. you're a marginalised person, mm. the point you're making, you understand that, right? So yeah. I understand that when I go to certain places, I have no control. It's yeah. what people think of me. So yeah. I'll get in a train, no one sit next to me. Mm. Most people don't see that, but I see it. But yeah. I can't do nothing about it. Yeah. But so depending on your position in the structure, mm. so people who are looking at me at the top of the structure, mm. when they encounter, so for example, I know I spoke to a few white people, when they encounter marginalisation, so mm. whereas the state is hacking them, mm. they, and they feel like they're being judged, they take mm. that so personally. Yes. They yeah. take it to the point, and I'm like, but this is my existence every day. Yeah. But they don't understand that. When I'm talking gender with some guys about like the Me Too movement, mm. they can't understand, they think, well, what, what I'm being judged. Mm. And they take that so but I said, but that's what you've been doing all along to other yes. people. Yeah. But because you're positioned in the structure, because you're mm. so close to the centre, mm. you don't understand what that feels like. Yeah. And I guess that yeah. sort of shared experience between certain people mm. is quite is very strong. And you even see it like bringing it back to yeah, I guess contemporary politics, like the whole Brexit thing. Like you can mm. see, I've, I reckon you've seen over the last eighteen months a lot of black. African and Caribbean people and mm. um, Asian people as well mm. being slightly frustrated at the rhetoric surrounding freedom of movement, mm. issues for EU citizens mm. and what th- what their lives are going to be like post-Brexit yeah. and people like that are at, from outside the EU being like, this has been our life the whole time, like yes. why are you not, why are you not engaging in, in this yes. in a way that recognises histories of state violence and I guess, mm. so, so I guess sometimes, yeah, politics makes people come back and draw to mm. um, culture, identity and ethnicity and mm. that sometimes... But I think it's also a product of racism. Okay. I remember one of the first things I ever wrote was when I was at university, I, I was involved in the anti-racism movement. That's how I became a journalist in the first place. And I wrote this um, piece for the paper about how, 
you know, and, and at that time, there was a lot of talk about immigrants need to assimilate more, you know, you need mm -hmm. to try and be more British, basically. And I'd grown up being re feeling really British because mm -hmm. my parents spoke English at home <coughs> and I lived in a very white area. Mm -hmm. All my friends were white. I didn't have a choice about that, but, you know, all my friends yeah. were. And, um, you know, my parents, contrary to assumptions about them, didn't cook curry every night. <laughs> they would cook yeah. fish and chips or burgers or whatever. So I felt really British. And here was this, here were other people saying, you're not assimilating enough. Essentially, you don't, you have, to what point will I have assimilated enough for you? At which point will that be? And essentially, sometimes it feels like you have to have white skin in order to be able to get there. There will be a barrier I'll never be able to cross. But more fundamentally, what racism does, including that kind of racism, which is the gentle, you're not assimilating enough racism, is make people retreat. It makes you less likely to assimilate and less likely to integrate because you feel like you're being treated like an outsider. And so what you do is you seek out your own community. You find people that you can relate to, yeah. that you know can understand your experience, and you want to spend time with them because they understand what you're going through. Mm. So actually, it achieves exactly the opposite. Mm. Assimilation and integration is not a problem for immigrants. It's a problem for everybody else mm -hmm. who should be integrating us and assimilating us and making people feel welcome and understanding that being British isn't about being like you, it's like being about us. Mm -hmm. And if we're all going to live together, then we have to understand that, that I should be able to be British, even if I eat curry every night and I have brown skin, and I'd still be completely British, you know, not have to hyphenate myself. This is, this is funny, I was, I was listening to another debate, and so what they've taken now, if you're on the, 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 the kind of more extreme side of the right, mm -hmm. you can be British, you definitely can't be English. <laughs> yeah. You can be British, because that's the international thing that... We, so we can let all the people from the Commonwealth... So that's you. You can be British, <laughs> but you can't be English. So I was born in England, but I can't yeah. be English. But can I tell you something really beautiful? Obviously, my parents emigrated from India, <laughs> so I grew up with some Indian identity. I've lived in India, I have a relationship with the country. My son, not so much, because you know he has very little Indian culture around him, and he, his extended family live here as well. And um, I asked him the other day, where are you from? Um, so he's, his best friend is Italian, because she was born in Italy, her family moved here, and she considers herself Italian, even though she is probably a British citizen now. And he said, I'm English. And I've never heard a brown kid say, I'm English. And I just felt, you know, I, I know some people feel uncomfortable with this, because it feels like denying your heritage. He's not denying his heritage at all. What he's doing is saying, I can be myself, and be English, mm. you know. Yeah, I think it's it's like, imagine powerful. getting to that point. Yeah, but then I get, but then the thing, the thing, it makes me like a bit emotional hearing that because I'm mm. like, someone's gonna tell him he's not. But the thing yeah. is, do you know what I mean? Like, but that's I what I mean when yeah. I say race belongs to other people. Yeah, you can define yourself any way you want. That doesn't mean yeah. other people will see you that way. And I, I agree, and I think that makes people feel uncomfortable. Both mm. your own people in your yeah. comments and yeah. the people who are objectifying yeah. you yeah. because you don't fit into a box right yeah and the whole point about race science it follows the, the enlightenment idea that you can categorize yes so you're that and you're this and that makes sense to the world yeah and i think maybe again like we speaking about earlier that's one of the problems it's an epistemological problem we need to mm. kind of attack modernity modernity this yeah. idea that you can put people into groups yes it was always a flawed system. Yeah, it was. So from like, what's his mm. name, Linnaeus and Blumenbach, mm. these things, they're not real. Mm. Just that these guys were at the top yeah. and they said, like, listen, so 
I'm at the top, you look like me, so you must be at the top. Yeah. And this guy, he's walking around with a spear, with a bow through his nose. So um, he must be at the bottom because I don't. But freedom do that. does not lie in rearranging the boxes and mm. saying actually white, you know, white European culture is the bottom and other cultures are the top. I think that's a mistake. Freedom lies in not recognizing the boxes. Yeah, exist and, get rid yeah, of them. Yeah. Having, yeah, being free of them. But I think that makes I know that's difficult. Un- make people feel comfortable. It does. Yeah. How I can know. I? How can I not like judge someone? Yeah. And put someone in the box because it, it. I think sometimes when you you can say at least it's not me. That's the. Yes. So yeah. if you look at. Current, current events, at least I live here and not in Afghanistan, right? <laughs> I just feel like some of the things, some, sometimes, I, I know we do talk, we talk about this on the podcast, the embedded nature of racism in our day-to-day lives, obviously, but also the appetite people have to categorise people and ultimately dehumanise people. Mm. I was just reminded of, actually, when you were just talking, Tiv, do you remember when, a couple of years ago, I think it was during the coalition government, there was some Syrian refugees, not very many, mm. of course, and the paper, like the Daily Mail and whatever, were going in on them saying, "Oh, they're not. They're not. Oh, they were children. Mm. They were unaccompanied minors that the British government had decided that they would bring in, like mm. very few. The papers would find out about their dental records, find out how old they are, and mm. how they're actually adults that are have come here to like drain the state. <laughs> and like, and I remember seeing these images of these like Syrian teenagers and mm. the appetite." To do that, to dehumanise, mm. I just find incredible still. That is just horrible. Yeah, we still do it. And people do it every day. But this idea of universal humanity, it feels so old-fashioned mm. now. It's a post-war idea. It's, it was essentially the basis of the foundation of the UN and the EU and all these kind of international systems. And I, in today's modern identity politics age, it seems to have gone out the window a bit that we're all actually the same underneath and that you know we should be celebrating the yeah. fact that we're all the same underneath. But we've kind of lost that. I would love to get back to that. Did you, did you watch Paul Gilroy's um, lecture no, recently? I oh, you should watch it. It's mm. called Retrieving the Human, I think. He's talking yeah. about that. Yes. It's really good. Um, I, I also think it's quite paradoxical, right? So this mm. idea of universality is, like, again, kind of a massive enlightenment idea. Yeah. Right? But Kant, who is super racist on one hand, mm. speaks about universality and the kind of idea of coming together in like these essay called a perpetual peace, the idea of coming together. So you think like, so this contradiction's always been yes. in yeah. Western thought. Mm-hmm. Like on one hand, they can see the universal human, mm. but also they see the subjective individual that doesn't want they want to yeah. kind of categorize. So unless you can resolve that conflict within this what kind of yeah this kind of philosophy this mm. way of thought I don't, and I don't know how you do that I think well I do you know I've struggled with this because in scientific communities there's a lot of talk about diversity and we need more diversity not just in representation amongst academics but also for example in clinical trials that we need diversity in clinical trials and sometimes this gets confused with the idea that we are biologically different that somehow oh, we're not God, just talking about cultural yeah. diversity but biological diversity mm-hmm. and that's what I worry about because even like you're saying in those early, early enlightenment ideas there was this universalization of humanity but also this assumption that even within that humanity bracket there are different groups and we are united in our diversity if mm-hmm. you like mm-hmm. we are different but we're all still human and although we still have that idea what we haven't lost is this, this fundamental truth which is 
we are far more alike than you think we are, actually. And the groups, this united in diversity that you're talking about, is really cultural diversity mm -hmm. more than anything else because it doesn't map on yeah. to your genome in any way. But I see a very a lot of muddy thinking within genetics and especially healthcare research where yeah. people in their kind of well-intentioned willingness to have more diversity confuse that with this illusion or myth that there is th the reason for doing that is because we're biologically different that genetically they need all that data well that's not the case yeah. at all god you just mentioned like healthcare, like with regards to race as well which makes mm -hmm. me think about the pain thing about the doctors thinking that yeah. like qualified gps think that black people got feel pain differently yeah it's crazy it's, it's yeah. like it's insane yeah it is we wanted to maybe talk to you a little bit about not necessarily reasons to be cheerful but reasons to feel a bit more optimistic because mm. I know you've got you're doing a lot of work a lot of people are doing a lot of work to try and yeah fight this stuff and I remember I asked you when I first met you how could we be having such an amazing sort of cultural moment mm. like whether it's in publishing or it's in media podcasts even mm. academia to an extent mm. whilst also we've got this really scary scientific racism far right white supremacist mm. mainstream thing happening like so these things and, and you've said that they're not that that's not a coincidence no. like no. that this sort of revival that we're having is going to be riling people up yeah and it always happens in every we forget actually because we look back at the past and we think wow, women got the vote, isn't that great? It must have been such a wonderful time. Well, actually, women died and really suffered to get that vote, and there were loads of people who resisted them. Mm. And every stage, civil rights movement, I mean, look how bloody and violent Brutal. the civil rights movement was. At every stage of um, emancipation or every stage of people pushing for justice or rights, there has been a pushback. So it shouldn't surprise us now that as women gain more rights and as minorities push for further rights, that there is that same pushback. Mm. And it's sometimes the people who are pushing back in their desperation, because they have so little left to stand on scientifically mm. and intellectually, they will dredge up theories from the 19th century. You know, And you've seen this in your work. You go online and you see ideas that are literally straight out of the 1850s or 1860s, and they're somehow mm. applying them to, re to modern days as though everything since then hasn't refuted that. And that is um, to be expected. We always need to keep up that pressure I think and keep pushing I mean one of the clever things that these intellectual racists do now is try and discredit people they try and create these kind of false equivalent arguments as though the anti-racist and the racist both have an intellectual leg to stand on that we're both as qualified as each other to talk about what we're talking about um, that really frustrates me and it really angers me as well because the weight of evidence is obviously not with them um, the fact that they've managed to manipulate discourse to make it feel like that and the fact also that sometimes the media plays into that mm -hmm. so I've had interview requests for radio programmes and they've said we'll have you on but let's get someone from the other perspective like a racist oh. I'm just like oh, I've done that work I'm a journalist I'm not speaking from one political position I've done that work and now you're marginalising me and saying that I am somehow on one on one have a certain opinion and that other people have other opinions that's not what is happening here and that kind of worries me see i 
rate that position because you're willing to, uh, to kind of challenge that. But some people go into talk shows and why put yourself on a talk show with someone you're, you're obviously going to disagree with, right? And this, it's not going to clear up the debate, it's going to entrench people mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. And I see people do it all the time. On That's why I stopped watching Question Time. <laughs> because it's become to the point where this is not actually a debate and same thing with the online arguments now. Like, mm -hmm. Why are you arguing online? You're not going to achieve. Listen, the person that's arguing is not going to say, "Hang on a minute, you've got a point." <laughs> no, I'm, I'm never. Gonna, they never I'm, do I'm that. See completely to what you're saying. I've never in my life seen that happen, and that's why these people who say that we should argue with racists, no. I'm like, you know, you. It's and I only ever hear people who aren't victims of racism say that. Mm. You know, like yes, uh, that white bros online who think, yeah, this is, this is a fun debate to be having. It's not fun if you're the victim, if you're the one being dehumanised, actually. I'm not going to debate with someone about whether I'm equal to them or not. No, I'm not doing that. But the thing is, when, you, when I've had debates with them and you push... So I, I try to use the idea of the, the, their own canon, right? So, mm. so I said, there's, we get into a debate and I said, OK, this is a guy called W.K. Clifford and he says he talks from epistic responsibility. So mm -hmm. responsibility for your beliefs is so said, if you can't justify what you say, mm -hmm. then you shouldn't hold that belief, right? Mm -hmm. So we start off in an argument, we start talking. So I keep pushing them, asking, well, well, why? Why do you believe that? Ultimately, one guy said to me, well, I don't know. I just don't like them. And I said... <laughs> That's what it always is, though. And, and, it's never anything else. And I said, I said, I said if you started on the basis that, I said, I, I, I can respect that position, right? Yeah. That's how you feel. I can't challenge mm. how you feel, yeah. but all, but anything that you've said yeah. for the last 35 minutes has been a lie then. Good for you for getting to that point, because very rarely oh, do Angela, people ever he's, get he's to that position. He's always debating these people. I am not up for it, but he wants to debate them. <laughs> We're going to have to end there. That's really sad because it's such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Thanks Angela. You're very welcome. Big it's in the game. Pleasure. Big, big in the game. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. We'll have another episode for you. Please continue to rate and subscribe. And make sure you get Superior. Come on. This book is so, it's such a good book. Like, and can I just say before we finish as well, it's so well written. When, when we come, when we, when we, when we turn off, I need you to no. give me some writing skills. Just because it's so much detail, but no. just not alienating. No, I, the best thing for me, and I think, is a book like that is not written in that overly academic language, right? Because yes. that's for an, a certain audience. I don't want academics to read my work. I want normal people, because that's what matters. Academics, we debate amongst ourselves <laughs> on technical points, <laughs> and we roughly yeah. agree, right? Yeah. But, she, but, but Angela like, breaks down things that we talk about in sociology in a much more coherent way. Oh, anyway, sorry. You. End it there. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs>